Thanks everybody for coming. How are we doing? Week four. We're still breathing. Deep breaths. All right. It's busy. Maybe. Maybe it's less busy. Um, for those who don't know me, I'm Sid Drew and I'm the RUF campus minister. RUF stands for Reformed University Fellowship, which is a Christian ministry that exists to serve Davidson College, its students and its campus. So we're thankful that uh, you all are here, but let me tell you a little bit more about RUF. RUF exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, for the believer and the unbeliever, for the pretty in pink and the brooding in black, for the heavily involved, perfectly matched up couple, and Mr. Bachelor and Miss Independent. And RUF exists for those of you who think Jesus is the lover of your soul, and for those of you who think that Jesus loving you in that way feels awfully weird. In other words, wherever you are, whoever you are, thanks for coming. We're glad you're here. We hope you feel welcome. We hope you get to know RUF and RUF gets to know you. Um, so that means if you've been around, maybe you get to know someone new. Um, if, you're, if you're new, I know it's a big step, so thanks for coming and I uh, hope you feel welcomed. All right. Let's talk about, there's a, there's a sign-up in the back for emails, I think, or maybe it's going around, I don't know. That's okay, either way. Um, another thing to think about to kind of get more plugged in is to look at the Davidson RUF Facebook site. We're trying to keep it up, um, kind of posting stuff on there is helpful for us. So if you want to be a part of the community, that's one way to do that. Um, again, we're really glad you're here, and we hope you come back next week. But we also want to emphasize that Davidson's a community that meets outside of Tuesday, or RUF at Davidson's a community that meets outside of Tuesday nights. And so there are things like small groups to jump into, to sign up for in the back, um, or to, um, to get a, be a part of. If you lead a small group, can you just raise your hand? Maybe talk to one of those folks um, and, and get to know them a little bit if you're interested. Um, there's something for you, and it's not too late. Okay. All right. The other thing that you can jump into is ARIA Fall Conference. So there's some flyers, kind of every other seat scattered around. There's a. We're saying tonight's the deadline. Um, it's technically open until Thursday night, but there's 75 or fewer spots, and there's over a dozen schools. So basically, it's first come, first serve. So basically, by tonight, tomorrow morning, it's going to be filled up. Um, remember, the other schools are not you know, 1,800 students. So, so they're bringing a lot of folks. So if you want to come, come talk to me if you can't afford it. It's a little late to talk to the chaplain's office now, uh, but RUF does have scholarship money for this. And, uh, and there's different times in which you can get a ride, especially if you need to leave early. So come talk to me. And then the information's on that uh, handout. It's really, like, especially, let me just say this, if you're a first year and you're still getting to know RUF or you're new and you're getting to know RUF, this is a great opportunity to do that. Uh, and take a risk, and I hope that you'll enjoy it. There's great people, great teaching, and it's a beautiful spot. Okay, so this semester in large group, what we're doing here is we're discussing Paul's letter to the Colossians, the book of the Colossians in the Bible. Uh, The title and the theme for our study is, What if Jesus was actually enough? What if Jesus was actually enough? And our passage tonight, again, is going to address that title and that theme. Uh, but at the same time, I also want to give you uh, an explanation, a small, short explanation of what that means. It basically is saying this, the title and the theme of this book is telling us that Christianity is not primarily about what we do. Christianity is primarily about what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do in the universe and in our lives. It's a really helpful 
um, correction and reminder for us. So radical, crazy, Jesus-calling kind of love is not some new formula to be a better you or better me today. It's us leaning more fully into Jesus. It's seeing Jesus as he is, the creator and sustainer of all things and of all of us. And this Jesus is who Paul, the author of the letter of the Colossians, is getting worked up about. We've gotten through the introduction stuff, we've gotten through the prayers and the thanksgivings, and verses 15 and following are right where the meat of Paul's letter. And actually, he's so excited about talking about how Jesus is the center of everything, that he starts to break out into song. Okay, this is actually a a hymn. He's singing a hymn in the middle of his letter. Uh, So, with that spontaneous singing state of mind going on in our hearts, uh, would you stand for the reading of scripture? Again, this is custom for me. Um, so please, if you can do that, that would be great. Um, it's on your song sheet, the, the passage, but if you don't or if you prefer the Bible, it's in the New Testament behind Philippians and in front of 1 Thessalonians. And uh, we're going to look at verses 15 through 19, mostly 15 through 17, but we'll also look at verse 19. So Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 19. He's the image, he being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created in him, and uh, through him, excuse me, and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things are held together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that everything might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Friends, these are the words of God, and they are more precious than gold, even much fine gold, and they are sweeter than honey, even honey from the honeycomb. Would you pray with me? Father, um, I pray that you would show up. I pray that you would be true to your promises, that when your word is read, when your word is spoken, that where two or more gather in your name, that where your church is present, that you, O oh Father, show up. And I pray that that would be the case tonight. That your power and your glory and your beauty and your goodness and your truth would overwhelm us. That we would swell with your affection. We pray, Jesus, that you wouldn't leave us alone. I pray that you would, you would confront us with your truth, um, that it would convict us if we need to be convicted, and it would heal us if we need to be healed. And I pray, Father, that um, in the midst of of our everyday busy lives, this Tuesday night, that this would be a moment set apart. We're thirsty and we're hungry to hear from you. And I pray that you'd feed us and you'd give us wine to drink. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Alright, have you ever done something day in and day out that you thought was just absolutely meaningless? I mean, maybe you have a work study, but you, don't, you can't do your homework and so you just sit there and you just wait for people to come in who never come in because it's the building on campus that no one goes to. Or maybe uh, you feel like that with your class. It's this endless posting of discussion points on a, on a, 
on the internet that you feel like no one actually reads and no one cares about. And all you do is just post things over and over and over again, and people don't really care and you don't really care. Or maybe it's this, you're in the lab all afternoon, and all you're trying to do is make a clear liquid into a clear bubbly liquid. And that takes you all afternoon, and you're thinking, what in the world is the point of this? Okay? For me, my personal experience with an incredibly meaningless repetitive task was the summer between my sophomore and my junior year in college. And that was when I worked at Wendy's. <laughs> um, to be honest, I liked a lot about the job. I made friends with my fellow burger flippers because I worked at the grill because apparently there's a seniority system at Wendy's that doesn't value your education, um, high school or college. So I was on the grill. And uh, I got along with the people. I entertained myself by like slyly popping chicken nuggets when the manager wasn't looking, taking kitty-sized frosty shots until I had like freeze headaches. Um, I even perfected like what combinations of soda to have, like kind of figured out the perfect suicide. Um, I'm going to tell you this right here, right now. Root beer ruins pretty much any combination. It's a little strong, okay? Uh, but most days, I had the opening shift of a restaurant that only served lunch and dinner. I got there at 7 a.m. most mornings and uh, worked. And this meant that most of my job consisted of, of scrubbing the pavement of the drive-thru. Okay? Yes, you heard me. I scrubbed the drive through asphalt. The road. Not the signs, not the drive through window, the road. Every morning. You need to picture firmly what this felt like and this looked like for me. Okay, It was Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, late June. It was near 100 degrees and it was sticky humid. There I was in my navy blue Wendy's uniform with my shoes I bought at Walmart, proudly, that I never actually washed any of the whole summer. Yes, it was that gross. And I had a hat that flattened my incredibly poofy shoulder-length hair, which I did have in college. Okay? And I was equipped to clean the oil-stained asphalt with two incredibly essential items. A push broom and a watering can full of watered-down cleaning solution. That was, those were my tools. So in the heat of the day, just as it was starting to get very, very hot, I would pour out the watery suds, get the broom, and drive the oil further into the asphalt, because that's all you can do. Uh, no amount of intense effort, no amount of scrubbing with soapy water can really clean off years-old stains of oil on a road. So not only did this, this job seem pointless, after all, who really cares what the asphalt of the drive through looks at when you're going to go buy fast food? And it felt meaningless. I couldn't actually even accomplish the task at hand. Cleaning the pavement of that drive through I had some of my worst moments of my life. <laughs> Something like a quarter-life crisis, I suppose. I had just become a Christian earlier that year. And in the middle of doing that hard, meaningless scrubbing, I was assaulted with some serious doubts about just what I was doing with my life. Not just, what am I doing out in a parking lot with a push broom? Or why am I working fast food for a whole summer? But even further, what am I doing with my life? Why am I a Christian? What is this all about? You see, I was in Myrtle Beach for a summer, a summer camp of sorts. And I remember thinking, do I really believe in this Jesus thing? Is Jesus true? Or is Jesus some sort of patterns in the static? What in the world am I doing here with a plastic watering can 
a push broom, and a faith in an unseen, distant Lord. I wish I had read Colossians chapter 1, verses verses 15 through 19 that summer. Because I think, although I'm not a Colossian, neither are you, Paul is and was speaking through this text to people like you and me here tonight. Whether you feel like you're push-booming years-old stains for a living right now, or you find yourself wrestling in the spiritual dark every once in a while. You're asking yourself, I'm asking myself, does the universe have any meaning? Is Jesus bigger than a nice guy who likes to give side hugs? Is he? Commentator Kent Hughes calls Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and following the most closely reasoned presentation of the supremacy of Christ anywhere in the Bible. The most closely reasoned presentation of the supremacy of Christ anywhere in the Bible. And what he means is that Jesus is Lord of all, or, is he, or he's not a Lord at all. In other words, Jesus has always been what everything is all about. Simply put, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 19 tell us this. In a sentence. Jesus makes and sustains everything that is. Jesus makes and sustains everything that is. Therefore, we work with meaning, and we work with margins. Okay? Jesus sustained, created and sustains all things. Therefore, we work with meaning, and we work with margins. This passage speaks into our doubts and lifts up our hearts, lifts up our hearts in two distinct stages. First, we're going to look at where the meaning of our work comes from. And second, we're going to look at why Jesus' work has to be meaningful. So we're going to look at where the meaning of our work comes from, and then we're going to look at why Jesus' work has to be meaningful. So we're really actually just going to answer two big questions. Where does the meaning of our work come from, and what are some clues that point to Jesus at work in the universe. That's what we're going to do tonight. It's kind of a lot to take on. It's a big passage. Um, And so, but I really want to start with what the passage is that pains for us to believe, which is that Jesus created the universe out of nothing, and that he sustains it, he hangs it on his very provision. That's what we're going to talk about at the very beginning. And I think we see this very clearly in our passage. Our passage is extremely painstakingly clear. Jesus both made and sustains the universe. Verse 16, Paul tells us, For by means of him, Jesus, all things were created. And if we had any doubt about what all things meant, if we were to wiggle around and say, hey, that just means some things, not other things, Paul elaborates. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or authorities, all things were created through Christ and for Christ. But Paul isn't done. He declares, he declares more that makes us modern people squirm. He says that God is not a divine clockmaker that, that winds up the universe, sets everything into motion, steps back and lets us live in absolute freedom. That's not what God's about. Verse 17 tells us, And in Jesus all things hold together. Jesus not only created all things, he holds all the same things. All the things that span the heaven and the earth, every power at work here on earth and there in heaven, everything is sustained by Jesus. Theologians call this the doctrine of providence. Okay? Jesus provides for everything. He provides for the curvature of space-time that creates gravity. 
He provides for the birds of the air to be fed. He provides for you and for me to do, to do quote-unquote important things like change public policy and to do quote-unquote unimportant things like send a daily email. On what basis or how does God or Jesus Christ, in this case the person of God, make and control all things? The text is equally clear. Jesus is co-equal and co-eternal with God, the Father. There was not a time when the Son was not. In other words, uh, the Son of God has always been. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. He is before all things, verses 15 and 17. Therefore, because of his equal and eternal status in the Godhead, in Jesus all the fullness of God dwells. Okay? And this fullness of God is the power behind creation and the holding together of all things. The universe that is dripping with destructive forces of entropy, of corruption, and of decay is held together by Jesus and the power of God that dwells within him. In astrophysics terms, Jesus is like the dark matter that pulses behind the visible universe. In fact, Jesus is ordering, created, and sustaining the dark matter that pulses behind the visible universe. Okay. I know at this point, at least some of you are wrestling with, wrestling hard with a claim that seems to contradict a popular scientific view of the universe. Okay, that you may be here in class, that you've heard growing up, wherever you've heard it, or wherever you hear it from your roommate. Let me briefly explore, though, the so what before I get into more about that popular view that's bothering us all. Look at Colossians chapter 1 in terms of what the so what is. I've just described to the doctrine of creation, doctrine of providence. I've told you that Jesus is, is the firstborn over all creation, that the fullness of God dwells in him. He sustains all things. All things hang together in him. And really, all that means is that everything that exists has meaning. Everything that exists has meaning. Okay? Everything was made and is held together for a purpose, for an end goal. And that purpose, that end goal, is Jesus Christ. That's what the passage is telling us. The same Jesus who lived and died 2,000 years ago here on earth in modern day Israel. If this is true, then that changes things. If this is true, then we must view our work as more meaningful. We've got to view our work as more meaningful. The reason we take studying seriously, the reason that you care so much about what you major in, the reason that you, that you care so much about what you do with your life after Davidson, all this assumes that a universe operates with beauty, goodness, and truth. All of it. Otherwise, you wouldn't and I wouldn't care. All of the goodness and the beauty of the truth this passage is telling us comes from, hangs in, Jesus Christ. I mean, if the universe is meaningless and there's no real good to be done, no universal truths to discover, no beauty to adore, then why are we studying? <laughs> why go to the library after this? Why do your homework at all? Why be here? What's the point? Look, if there is not something, or rather someone behind the scenes, furnishing the universe with a discernible purpose, a discernible end goal, why bother caring in the present 
about your education or in the future about the job that awaits you. In other words, Jesus' creation and his providence undergird the value of a Davidson College. Okay? Both in its present education and its future job prospects. Do you get that? We're tracking? Okay. You don't, have to, you don't have to agree with me. I just want you to hear that argument. Because it leads us to a final application. If Jesus created and sustains all things, then we also need to understand that our work not only has meaning, it has margins. Okay? Healthy limits that we get to rest in. This is so important for us to hear. Jesus is the creator of all things. We're not. Jesus is the sustainer of all things. He holds up and holds together all things. We don't. We have a choice when we hear this. We can get offended by the sovereignty of God, or we can rest in the sovereignty of God. Yes, it hurts badly that you and I are not the central characters, the main players in the story of life. But isn't it amazing that God, Jesus Christ, still uses our work to uphold the universe? After all, he doesn't need your library time or club activities or athletics, yet he is mysteriously using them to sustain all things. But think about the margins our lives would have if we actually believed that Jesus was in charge of the universe's destiny. For just a minute, okay? If we took Jesus' work more seriously, it would look like more sleep, less stress, and more time to give to other people in need. How? Because trusting in Jesus' ability to finish his heavenly work, his heavenly providence, just like he finished his salvation here on earth, this Jesus gives us the strength to end the day with unfinished tasks and to say no to good things and to disappoint people. Why? Because in the words of a Puritan theologian, success is God's work. Success is God's work, not the Christian's duty. Success is God's work, not the Christian's duty. But look, some of you are tracking with that, but I lost some of you miles ago. Miles and miles and miles ago. And we're going to come back, we're doing a U-turn, and we're coming back to that, okay? I realize the minute I use the word creation to describe what Jesus is doing in this passage, I lost some of us. I think this is for two reasons. And these are very important reasons. First, when you talk about creation, when I say creation, the word creation, it crosses some very political lines inside of all of us. Okay? Some of you grew up in certain kinds of churches and are fine with words like creation, but very, very uncomfortable with the way that people popularly use scientific terms. Others of you grew up in places where creation is an extremely loaded word. Okay? When you hear the word creation, you think about the big raging debate about evolution and creationism. You think about the supposed age of the earth. And you think about the public school textbooks. Okay, what's going on there? Okay. What chapter should be or shouldn't be included? Ah. Okay, so look, I'm not really going to step into that cultural war. I don't appreciate the way that the battle lines have been drawn on either side. I just don't. And I think that what Paul is saying here in verses 15 through 19 
is actually deeper and more essential than the words conservative or liberal can even sniff at. He's talking about something far more valuable than politics. Second reason I think the term creation is uncomfortable is that it invokes, and within us, it evokes a simplistic picture of the universe that is more cultural than biblical and seems anti-scientific. Okay? As usual, C.S. Lewis puts this best, so I'll just quote him. Okay? And that, an essay called Horrid Red Things, pretty obscure but beautiful. What troubles the ordinary man is an all-pervading difference of atmosphere between what he believes Christianity to be and that general picture of the universe which he has picked up from living in the scientific age. In other words, the whole Christian thing seems to imply a local material heaven, a palace in the stratosphere, okay? a flat earth, and all the rest of those archaic misconceptions. But Lewis goes on to describe how the vast majority of scholars, even in his day in the 1940s and 50s, true theologians, real artists, and, and, uh, and real scientists don't really believe that there's an inherent conflict between science and religion, and faith and reason. That this is mostly a popular level conversation. And the reason it's mostly a popular level conversation is because of two things. It's a purely emotional argument, and it sells magazines. Okay? It sells magazines. So, look, if I'm Time Magazine and I'm Newsweek Magazine, I know that if I put the word faith and I put a halo over it and then I put a lightning bolt next to it and then I divide that word faith from science and I have like a test tube next to it and I sort of say conflict, conflict with, a, with an underlying and explanation point, I'm going to sell a lot of magazines around Christmas and Easter. I just am. And so part of the perpetuation of this is, uh, is capitalism, and part of it actually is emotional. And I think, uh, therefore, it matters that we actually take stock of what the great thinkers of the world consistently observe about a meaningful universe. If we listen carefully to what the, the great thinkers, scientists, poets, and theologians understand the universe to be, we start to get clues that point to Jesus creating and sustaining everything that is. So let's start with the poets. Okay? Many of our great poets have observed the ultimate character of things as comely and good. And that this ultimate beauty and goodness is not imposed by us, the observer, but rather exposed by God to the careful observer. Listen to the way that a former poet laureate, Richard Wilbur, puts it. It's a beautiful passage. In the strict sense, of course, we invent nothing, merely bearing witness to what each morning brings again to the light. Gold crosses, cornices, astonishment of pains, the turbine vent which natural law spins on the grill end of the diner's roof, the grass and the grackles, or at the end of town in sheen-swept pasture land, the horse's neck, clothed with his usual thunder, and the stones beginning now to tug their shadows in and track the air with glitter. All these things are here before us, there before we look or fail to look. But perhaps some of the scientists among us are not super convinced by that poetic rendering of the universe and have some questions. Uh, and 
I think there's plenty of scientific evidence that beauty is in the structure of the universe and not just in the eye of the beholder. So I'm going to name a few great scientists that say that. Let's start with Albert Einstein. The world's most famous physicist argues that structural beauty of the universe when he says, the only incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it's comprehensible. The only incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it's comprehensible. Fleshing that out, another, another poet, another Nobel Prize winning physicist, this, in this case Murray Gelman, explains what Einstein meant. He says, a beautiful or elegant theory, that is something like E equals MC squared, is more likely to be right than a theory that is inelegant. In other words, beauty is a very successful criterion for choosing a correct scientific theory. Okay? Even scientists like Johannes Kepler and Charles Darwin that are often used to divide science and religion from each other actually affirm God's handiwork, if you read them closely. For instance, Kepler credits his discoveries about the solar-centric universe to, quote, the divine principles of mathematical beauty. And Charles Darwin, in a letter to Asa Gray, a friend and colleague, writes about his inability to conclude that everything is a result of brute force. He then tells Gray, my views are not at all atheistical. Have you heard that one before? I hadn't. <laughs> okay? The point of all these quotes is not just to show that science and religion are naturally compatible, even to the most brilliant minds. It's also to suggest that we need an explanation for all this observable meaning in the universe. Why is it so meaningful? Why are things so observably true, good, and, and beautiful? And I think the two most compelling and popular explanations are, are the following. First, a pseudoscientific popular atheism, which reduces the universe down to an ironically unpredictable admixture of time, matter, energy, and chance. Okay? So a reductionistic version of materialism. Second, a Christian theism, which makes a case for a real historical God, Jesus, whose creation and providence reflect his good, true, and beautiful character. Okay? Those are the two, I think, all-encompassing theories of how everything works. And if I had time, and we've had energy, and I'm more than happy to talk about this at another time, and we can sit down and talk about this one-on-one or in a small group or whatever, I would kind of talk to you about the internal consistencies and inconsistencies, the external evidences and fallacies that attend to each of these two systems of thought. Okay? But I'd actually just like to do something very simple. I'd like to test how satisfying each version of reality is. Okay? In order to test this idea of satisfaction, I'm going to appeal to a theologian named St. Augustine. He writes in the 4th century, early 5th century, okay? in a time not unlike ours, with multiple theories about how things work, multiple worldviews in the world. And he devised a simple test that actually led to his personal conversion and his further conviction. And it's this. It's very simple. Two questions. Can you actually live by that worldview? And would you die for that worldview? Can you live by that worldview? And would you die for it? That's his, that's his test. And you see, 
Many people believe things that are actually impossible to live out. And when push comes to shove, they certainly wouldn't die for it. This is what makes Christianity unique over against currently popular forms of atheism. Look, I've met many people that, albeit imperfectly, try to live out the Christian faith. And history tells us that many people have died for Christian beliefs. But I have yet to meet a single person who even tries to consistently live as if everything boils down to matter plus randomness. Listen, if we truly believed that life is only material and meaningless flux, why would we bother going to Davidson College? (laughs) This is a place that argues for education for education's sake. This isn't a place where you get power and money and prestige when you enter the door. Most of us just get debt. Okay? If life is just a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing, then why would we stop and help other people? Right? Why not bite and scratch and claw our way over others like Lady and King Macbeth? Maybe a story is going to help us here to kind of see the resonance of this and not just think I'm beating up on people. Okay? I had this professor in graduate school named Sherry McKenzie. He was an older man, gentle, sweet man. Uh, but he was also sort of a walking encyclopedia of the 20th century. Okay, have you ever met these people? He had met like every famous person in the 20th century. <laughs> Let me just give you some examples to prove my case. Okay? First, Sherry McKenzie happens to be in a Parisian cafe in the left bank. Okay? And he overhears a conversation between Jean-Paul Sartre and Albert Camus about their varying forms of existentialism. He's there for that. Okay? Second proof. He lives in Princeton, New Jersey, and happens to time his walks around his apartment building with Albert Einstein's walks of his dog and has conversations, extended conversations with Albert Einstein about the nature of things. Okay? And then, as chair of the Stanford University Philosophy Department, my professor met a guy named Richard Rorty. Okay? Richard Rorty um, was, in fact, applying for the job that Sherry McKenzie held at Stanford University as the chair of the epistemology department. Okay? For those of you who don't know, Richard Rorty was, he just passed away recently, one of the foremost proponents of meaninglessness. <laughs> he picked up the mantle that Nietzsche left behind. He discounted the truth of all our observations about the universe. Okay? Here's, he agreed with Nietzsche that truth is a mobile army of metaphors, Truths are illusions which we have forgotten are illusions. That's, his, that's what he believes. It's called neo-pragmatism. Okay? So, my dear old Mr. McKenzie, Dr. McKenzie, asks Richard Rorty why he's applying to be a professor when he clearly thinks that teaching is pointless. Why is he married and have children when he clearly thinks that love is not real? And why does he go sit in that corner and eat a head of cabbage for the rest of his life, because that's what his philosophy amounts to. And do you know what Richard Rorty said to these questions? Nothing. Not a single word. All he could do was shrug and smile and had no answers. The foremost proponent of meaninglessness had no answer for why he lived in a meaningful fashion. Okay? Here's the deal. Do you see the point of this passage? What will inspire us to continue to do work that we find meaningful? What will help us to read and do problem sets, to rehearse and practice, 
to pray and help other people? What will give us to endure those moments of life of excruciating meaninglessness when we're given a push broom and a sudsy watering can and said, go to work? A belief in Jesus' work gives our work meaning. It enables us to work through times of meaninglessness. And it even allows us to humbly rest from work altogether. We work and we rest in the historical and scientific reality that by the very word of God's power, Jesus created and now provides for his creation. Simply put, Jesus at work is the motivation that we need to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Would you pray with me? Father, um, this is heady stuff, and it's um, where some of us need to hear, and some of us maybe think we've heard it all before. And I pray, Father, that you would be in the midst of that, showing us that you're at work in heaven, that your creation is good and done, but your sustaining work continues, but that you are going to finish what you started, that you finished salvation that you started, and you will finish the way that the universe will come to an end. That we have a glorious picture in scripture for that, where there will be no more tears, and everything will be made new. And I pray, Father, that you would renew us with that vision, that you'd renew our efforts at the work in the week four of what's proving to be maybe a tough semester. And I pray, Father, that you would give us the meaning, and give us the purpose, and give us the fortitude it takes to not just work, but to rest. And I pray, Father, that you would be alongside us, teaching and encouraging us in your Holy Spirit, nurturing us with, the, with this beautiful vision that Jesus loved us who believe enough to die for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.